Is there anything that, like, from your side, let's just rather stay away from? No, 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 no. No, you must go for it. I mean, okay. I've, I've always thought if I can't answer the question, that's my problem. All right, welcome to the next edition of the Yuppie Chef Foodie Chat Show podcast. And this week we have a very austere guest. We have uh, Emeritus Professor Tim Noakes with us. And we're going to be asking him some of the big questions. We've put it out to our community. And we're also just going to be having a little bit of fun and just finding out where he is at the moment in life and, and you know, how this journey is progressing for, for him. But, but so welcome. Thanks, Nick. Lovely to be with you. Great. So we're going to kick it off with a bit of a fun question. And we're going to ask you, what is the one thing people would be surprised to know about you? That I'm very introvert. Really? <laughs> yeah. That is surprising. Yeah, it is. And I'm not sure how it developed, but I, I was always an introvert and a, a loner. And I think that's why I found running so exciting. Sure. And uh, over the years, I've learned how to be an extrovert. So when I talk with slides before a big audience, I'm fine. I can. I don't feel intimidated at all. In fact, I love doing that mm. because I'm spreading science but on a one-to-one I'm also I can be appear to be quite extrovert but on my own time I'm I like to be by myself and with my wife and children and that's 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 how I am fantastic will you just give us a brief rundown of your sort of your career and where you come from and you know I'm assuming most people obviously would know Mm. who you are but for those who don't who are you where do you come from how have you gotten to the place that you're at today I was born in Zimbabwe, and I was there because my parents left Britain at the end of the Second World War and emigrated to, to Rhodesia as it was then. It was hugely brave because they arrived in Rhodesia with nothing, and my sister and the pair, the, the pair of my parents. Yeah. And my dad did very well in business, and as a consequence, he could retire at quite a young age. And so we moved down to Cape Town when I was very young. And so I did all my schooling in Cape Town. I then went to America for an exchange program for one year, and that was absolutely pivotal in my life because that was when Chris Barnard performed the first human heart yes. transplant. And that impressed me so much that I decided when I came back to Cape Town, I wanted to study medicine, and I was fortunate to be accepted into medicine. Did my medical training and realized I wasn't really designed to be a doctor. I'm more interested in the science and also preventing disease rather than treating disease. And I had okay. absolutely no interest in pharmacology. I did not do you want to use drugs ever yeah. as a doctor? And it, it was so bad, I just I could not learn pharmacology. And today I still <laughs> retain that, that uh, disinterest in yes. pharmacology <laughs> because I thought there must be other ways of he- healing humans. So anyway, fortunately, I met Professor Lionel Opie during my training and decided I wanted to do my PhD with him, PhD in medicine, which I did. And then in 1981, when I'd finished the PhD, uh, the university said, well, why don't we start a sports science course? So we started the sports science course, and that led eventually to the formation of the Sports Science Institute and the research that we did in in sport and science. And, that's, and then I retired last year, and I'm now taking up interest in writing books, the books that I haven't written that need to be written. Sure. That's what I'm about to do. Um, so tell me, what I know obviously there was that major shift in your thinking a, a number of years ago. Yeah. What, what sparked that? What was the catalyst for that? The catalyst for my change in dietary advice was that I had been one of the forerunners of promoting this high carbohydrate, lots of grains and cereals mm. diet for 33 years. And mm. actually I got sick on it. And, and I didn't realize I developed type 2 diabetes, which I had. I only realized that in 2011. But in 2010, I reached the point where I was fat, I was lethargic, I didn't feel well, my running was terrible. And then by fortune, I came across a book called The New Atkins for the New You, written by Dr. Westman, Drs. Voley and Finnick, who now are all three of my best mates. And I I read the book, and it said there are 150 studies showing the benefits of low-carbohydrate diets. And I thought, you know, I'm in such a bad space at the moment physically, I can't be worse. And I've been doing this healthy diet now for 33 years. I can't do worse. So I tried it. And within days, I just felt amazing. And I lost in total 20 kilograms. Wow. And my running went back 20 years. I started feeling like I was a 40-year-old again. Wow. And eventually, I got my diabetes completely under control as well. And so that's it's been an amazing journey for me. During that, of course, I antagonized the whole of South Africa, it seems. <laughs> that seems so, yes. 
And, and, and I was about to be discarded to the dustbin of history, medical history, as a quack. But fortunately, because all my colleagues and many other people wanted to say you're a quack. Yes. Because I went so against what they taught and what they believed. But then John O. Proudfoot and Sally Ann Creed and myself and David Greer wrote this book, Real Meal Revolution, which yeah. we took, took five, five weeks to write it. And it just went unbelievable. It, just, sure. it changed the face of nutrition in South Africa forever. And we yeah. sold something like 200,000 copies already, and it's now being printed overseas. It's amazing. And it, you know, the word banting now is, is a popular word in South Africa, but no one knew about banting two years ago. No. Uh, look, I think it's probably fair. No one in, you know, in a podcast medium, no one can see who's speaking and all of that. So for people who, who've never met me or who know me, um, wouldn't necessarily know that I've been banting for a year after being diagnosed, like I, I told you earlier, with insulin resistance. And this whole banting revolution or you know, has come about at such a, a crucial time in my life, just turning 30, um, having found my insulin levels were in, insanely high. Um, thinking I was living a healthy lifestyle, I, my fiance at the moment, she's half Italian, half Portuguese. So you can imagine the amount of <laughs> healthy, in inverted commas, pastas I've been yeah. eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and was told, look, by the time you're 40, if you keep doing this, you're going to have a heart attack. Yeah. So it changed. It really has changed my life. But I think a lot of the criticism comes in, you know, oh, this isn't for everybody. This isn't, you know, so what is your take on, because I personally, it's easy for me to say, look, it works because it has worked mm-hmm. for me. I've lost mm-hmm. 22 kilos. Like I'm still on this journey. My levels are down. Everything's working. Do you think it works for everybody or is it just something that really is for a specific type of person? Well, it is really, if you have insulin resistance, this is the diet, that without this diet, you cannot survive. Sure. Uh, you will develop type 2 diabetes, obesity, hypertension, cancer, dementia, the whole bunch. Because insulin resistance is the disease and this is the point I'm trying to get across. Sure. You do, when you see a patient, you don't diagnose diabetes, you don't diagnose cancer, you say you've got insulin resistance and that's what's driving the problem. Mm. So let's treat the cause, which is high carbohydrates. And once you cut the high carbs, then you'll, the people start to get better. I must just qualify that I did mention cancer. It's my opinion that cancer is a carbohydrate-driven disease and it's part of the insulin resistance syndrome. That's not accepted generally. But definitely, there's no question that, that diabetes, hypertension, obesity and gout are all the same disease. If you're obese, you have type 2 diabetes in waiting. You may not have it yeah. yet. If you have type 2 diabetes, you have arterial disease. And converse, is if you have arterial disease, you have type 2 diabetes. It may not have been diagnosed, but you have it. And the treatment is the same. It's to cut the carbohydrates. Mm. Now, when you go outside and you look, and we say now 60% of South Africans are obese, okay, well, if it's 60%, then 60% should be on this diet. Yeah. So this is, in fact the main diet we should be promoting, not as an alternative. This should be the main one. Mm. The alternatives, if you're really healthy and you've earned it, you can eat your carbohydrates. Mm. But that is for a small percentage of the population. Great. Uh, we'll actually, we'll get back to another question similarly to that. But um, you mentioned some of the people that you, you know, around the world, some of the, the, the forerunning sort of uh, scientists and thinkers and doctors and everything. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Asim Mahatra about a year ago when he was in Cape Town. I was on a panel discussion with him. And uh, it seems like, what, what do you think, you know, people like that, how are they influencing their spheres? I know he's obviously trying to reform the sugar intake in, in yeah, England at the yeah. moment. Well, Asim's a terribly important person in the world. Uh, he's actually in Cape Town today. Oh, really? And he's here to film... The next film, because he, he did Serial Killers. He was part of the Serial Killers movies. Oh, was he? Yeah, oh, with Danelle O'Neill, yes. who's from Cape Town now. Yes. And they're doing the next one. It's called The Mediterranean Diet, or Finding the Mediterranean Diet. Wow. So Asim and Danelle have been to Italy to go to find what exactly is the Mediterranean Diet, and that's the story. So I'm going to be filming with them later this afternoon. Oh, wow, fantastic. For my input on that. Asim is, is, firstly, he's a cardiologist, which is fantastic. Yes. So when, and he's a cardiologist doesn't believe that the current way we're treating patients works. He doesn't think the statins works. He doesn't think the angioplasties work. He doesn't think the stents work. Mm. And when he looks at the evidence, it's clear that they, they are a standby. They don't really make any difference in the long term because if your arteries are inflamed by insulin and glucose, it doesn't matter. You can stent them and you can angioplast them and you can bypass them. They're still going to clog in mm. and cause heart attacks in due course. So you have to get to the cause. And he thinks that sugar is a crucial problem and he's been very active in that. But he's active in all areas. He's also active in the overprescription of medication interventions in medicine, 
which are, it's a real problem. The reality is medicine's a business, and we have to not forget that. Yeah. And unfortunately, when I trained in the 1970s, I was trained by people who were astonishingly good, and they were totally committed to the patient. And we didn't have all these other things to treat the patients with. But now, unfortunately, there's a huge industry mm. which has to be kept. It's a hungry industry. It mm. has to have patients. And w- that's what we've done. Fortunately, the patients are going to win in the end because with the social media, yeah. eventually patients will make the decisions on what they do. Mm. And, they will come, yeah, and they will come to the doctor and they'll say, Doc, I'm insulin resistant. I've read about the Banting diet. I am going on the Banting diet. You will measure my triglycerides, my insulin, my glucose, mm. my HDL cholesterol, and my LDL particle size. And I don't care what you say. I'm going to do it because it's my life. Sure. And that's what's going to happen. And, you know, one of the interventions that really makes us proud from the Noakes Foundation side, and the Noakes Foundation is the foundation we started with all the money that I get from the Real Meal Revolution. We started a project in Ocean View where we took 30 women and Eodia Sampson ran this project. She's mm. a very famous South African actress. And uh, we took 30 women who were physically active. They were training every day in the gym in, in Ocean View. But they were fat and they were diabetic and they were hypertensive. And we put them on a 30 rand a day banting diet. And wow. it's completely changed their lives. But most importantly, it's changing the community. And the key was we put the knowledge in and we yes. released these people. And we said, you don't have to listen to anyone. You go out and find what's good for you. And now as a community, they are reversing diabetes, obesity, hypertension. Doctors can't do it. We can't tell patients, you must do this one-on-one. That's not going to work. We need these people. I mean, one of the biggest banting groups in South Africa, 130,000 people on this banting help group. That's that's the future of medicine. It's the future of self-help. That's fantastic. Uh, uh, it's very interesting just to pick up on that that point you said about because I mean also banting is considered quite an expensive yeah, lifestyle yeah. and you said they they were doing it on thirty rand a day. You can easily do it on thirty rand a day, wow. because the, you need, the key to the banting diet is eggs, offal including liver, pilchards and sardines and vegetables. Wow, that's it. Now that and butter probably, <laughs> and, and other dairy. But but that that's it. And now it may not be a hugely exciting diet. But if you want to be healthy, and, you know, I don't eat much differently from that. Mm. And perhaps I could afford to eat more, but, but I don't. That, that's essentially what I eat as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you sp- you're speaking about the movie Serial Killers now and your, and your book, Real Meal Revolution. Apart from that, is there anything you can, you know, recommend a book or a movie that really represents the, the argument for LCHF lifestyle well? Yeah, there are, there are so many books now. I think the new Atkins for the New You is probably one of the best. And the reason I say it is because Dr. Westman wrote it. And Dr. Westman was the first guy after Atkins. So mm-hmm. Atkins was practicing in New York. And it's a really interesting story. And Dr. Westman was practicing in, in North Carolina. And two patients came to him and he said, what's happened? They said, well, we both lost 50 pounds. So he said, what do you do? She said, well, we're in the Atkins. He said, you can't go on the Atkins. <laughs> Atkins is going to kill you. Saturated fat, arteries, disease, and yes. so on and so forth. They said, I don't care, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost 50 pounds, and I'm in the condition of my life. So now Dr. Westman, because he's a clever man, he didn't say, I don't want to see you again or mm. you at your risk. He said, I'm going to Atkins. He got on the plane and flew to Atkins. Wow. And then he discovered that Atkins had treated so many patients with diabetes. And he said, but Dr. Atkins, where's the evidence? So Dr. Atkins said, well, it's all around me. Go and speak to this patient, that patient, that patient. Here's my records. He said, but it's not in the literature. Mm. And he said, you've got to get it in the literature. So Atkins said, you know, I think you're right. How much money do you need <laughs> to do the first trial? And he signed a check right wow. there and then gave it to Westman. And Westman did, started doing the first trials. So I'm so fortunate, you see, because we've got Westman's data. Yes. And we've got all these clinical trials showing that this diet outperforms Every other diet. And we understand the biology of it now as well. So that's, that's the one book, I think, and because it, it's not too complex. The problem with Atkins' first book, which is one of the best books on diet you'll ever read, mm. The Diet Revolution in 1972, that is a brilliant book, but it's out of print. And then he, he wrote a second book, which was, just became too complex. Mm. 
But his first book or this book, those are, those are two brilliant books. That's great. Yeah. So your background obviously is in running and in, and in training and sports yeah. and everything. And you, you know, you're based, well, we're based here at the Sports Science Institute. How do you see sportsmen picking up the LCHF lifestyle around the world? Is it, you know, there's, there's talk of the Australian yeah. cricket team doing yeah. it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Is there tangible results that they're seeing performance-wise um, for sportsmen that you know yeah. of who are taking up this, this lifestyle? Yeah, that's a great question because it is, it's the, it's hidden, it's happening all over the world that people mm. actually don't want to admit it because yeah. it's, it's a, a huge benefit to them. So I will tell you that we converted the Australian cricket team because of my friends, Dr. Dr. Peter Bruckner, who was a great friend, yes. and he converted himself. And he was the doctor for the Australian cricket team. And one day he'd lost like 20 pounds or 20 wow. kilograms. And he was looking quite different. He, he really had the metabolic syndrome. He was a bit paunchy. <laughs> and here he is with all these elite athletes. And one day he was reading Gary Taubes' book. This is the other book one needs yes. to do, Good Calories, Bad Calories. He was reading it at Lord's, you see, and in walked Shane Watson and said, Doc, what are you reading? So he, he said, well, I'm reading this book you know, about nutrition and how nutrition has changed. So Shane Watson said, you know, I've always struggled with my weight. I've always been overweight at the start of the season. I've had mm. to starve myself. By the end of the season, I'm in terrible shape because I can't continue anymore. Mm. And he said, my father has type 2 diabetes. Wow. And that's the key. If your father has type 2 diabetes, you're going to be insulin resistant. So Shane Watson went on it and benefited hugely. And, and he talks about how he has eggs and bacon for breakfast and he doesn't have to eat the rest of the day. And then he converted five or six other players, including Mitch Johnson. Yes. And that's really interesting because Mitchell Johnson's is an explosive guy. You yeah. see? So, and the banting's meant to make you worse. So anyway, the, but the b- biggest story for me is the funniest one is David Pocock. <laughs> yes. David Pocock is the open side flanker for Australia who was the top player in the World Cup recently. Yes. Now, the story goes that in 2011, David Pocock breaks all the rules and should have got a red card and a yellow card when he played South Africa <laughs> in that quarterfinal game, which with Bryce Lawrence didn't referee. And as a consequence, <laughs> he got away with murder and we, get, we lose, get knocked out of the World Cup. And so if David Pocock had arrived in Cape Town that week, I would have strangled him. And I think every South African would have as well, you know. But anyway, about, about eight months ago on Twitter, he said, these are the people you must follow on Twitter. And he f- names Tim Noakes as the top name. I said... So I wrote, I tweeted, tweeted back, I said, David, I forgive you. Everything you ever did in your life, you see, you were now mates, you see. So then he, a few weeks later, he wrote to me and he said, you know, Tim, or Professor, uh, I'm a Zimbabwean like you, and I came to Australia at the time that we left. It must have been 1990 for various reasons. I think I'm pretty close on that day. No, it must have been about 2000, round about there. And he said I had an eating disorder, and he's declared that in his book, so I'm not giving any information that... He, had a, he said, I had a fat phobia, and I, I wouldn't eat fat. And then mm-hmm. eventually I started reading other people. I read about the paleo diet, and then I got the real meal revolution, and wow. I decided I'm going to try it. And he said it was hugely beneficial. Wow. So he's, he's one of the best, but there are many others like that, and they're coming out of the woodwork every day. Yes. Most importantly, we here have done the second study, and I'll refer to that, but the first study has just been published by Volek and Finney. And they took a group of elite ultra-distance runners, the best in America, and they got the 10 who ate the high-fat diet and 10 who ate the high-carbohydrate diet. And these are all record holders and the best they could find. It took them a long time to get them. Sure. And what they found was that all the guys in the high-fat diet had chose to go on the high-fat diet. They had eaten the high-carbohydrate diets, but they found the high-fat diet was beneficial. And the key was when they studied them, they found that they burned fat two or three times faster rates than any had ever been measured before. Wow. And we, by the, at the same time, were doing a similar study right here in Cape Town. And we've shown exactly the same, that when you adapt to this high-fat diet, you burn fat at enormous rates. Wow. And so there doesn't seem to be a reason why you need to take carbohydrates for 90% of athletes. Maybe 10%, there is a group that may well need to take a lot of carbohydrate. But the average run-of-the-mill athlete, there's no question, they don't need carbohydrates. They'll do very well just eating lots of fat. Interesting. The other interesting point from that study was that after Volek reported the data back to the athletes, the 20 athletes, five, the 10 who were on the high-carb diet, five of them said, that's it, we've seen the data. Wow. We understand now we're going to go on to your diet. Yeah. Wow. 
And I think it's happening all the time. And I know in the Tour de France that they are reducing the carbohydrates. And also the All Blacks reported that one year ago they were sugar-addicted, high-carb guys. They're not. They cut the sugar because they saw serial killers. Or, or in fact, I think it was they saw another movie, That Sugar Movie, which is an Australian production. So the Australian guy said, oh, my gosh, I hope the New Zealanders <laughs> beat us in the World Cup. <laughs> so they've gone, they've gone definitely cut out all sugar. Yes. And they've definitely gone low carbs. And their, their physical trainer is, is a banting guy. He's absolutely committed. And I think – and, I, I, by the way, I was at, with Oxford Rowing Crew earlier this year. Mm. And their coach, Coach Bowden, is also banting wow. and has been and looks magnificent. And and he said we're slowly getting our oarsmen wow. to eat more more fat and less carbohydrate. So it's not only that it's actually it's actually necessarily good for weight loss. It also is like a performance yeah. enhancer. It's like a, yeah. it's like a natural performance enhancer. There's, yeah, there's no question that if you're exercising over five hours, this is the diet to be on. If that's your competition lasts more than five mm. hours, if it lasts less than two hours or three hours. I'm not sure, but then I've, I've just given you examples. Yes, yeah, sure. Cameron Funderburg is also a guy who eats less carbohydrates now than he did, and he sprints 50 meters yes, in, yeah. in his competitions. Wow. So t- have you experimented at all with fasting, uh, and how is that coming into the... Yeah, no, fasting is terribly important, and I, I eat once a day basically now. Oh, and wow. in fact, if I eat more than once a day, I don't really like it. I might snack two or three times, but I mean, literally to sit down to a meal, I, I will only do that once a day. Okay. And I think that's been hugely helpful in my diabetes control and my, uh, and my improvement of my condition. So I think fasting is critical because I think that's how humans are. Mm. You see, what, what I've learned, and I didn't know this until maybe a year ago or so, is that every time you eat carbohydrates, you secrete insulin, and the insulin makes you more insulin resistant. Mm. So if you're like me, you're already genetically insulin resistant and you take in the carbs, you become more insulin resistant. Mm. And the way to reverse it may be to just make sure your insulin is as low as possible. And it seems if you can get your insulin really low for long periods, like 6, 8, 12 hours, that has a massively different effect than what we're currently doing, eating every 3 hours and spiking your insulin. Mm. That is just going to make your insulin more insulin resistant, and then all these diseases will come along. Wow, because, I mean, the old data obviously is like a lot of it is, uh, you know, have six meals throughout the day, you know, small, six smaller meals yeah, throughout the yeah. day. With that. I mean, that's what I was told growing yeah, up and, and all of that stuff. Right. But so, you know, and also, also the old wisdom is, you know, breakfast, the most important meal of the day. Is that true or? Oh, absolutely, but not in the way you're told. Okay. <laughs> so, you see, if you, the reason why you're told to eat six meals a day is because that's addictive eating. Yes. And, and the problem as I see it, and I'm, this is no criticism of dietitians, but because they practice what they believe and they're welcome to believe it. But I just don't think it's true. And I think what's happened is with the processed food industry, we've all become addicted to sugar-based foods. Mm. And therefore, you have to eat every three hours because that's an addiction. It's like having a cigarette. You want to, drink, you want to smoke again in an hour's time. Mm. If you're eating sugar-based foods, you're going to want to eat in three hours' time. And so that's what they've done. They've said, well, eat six meals. But it doesn't work because the addiction is the problem. You have to get rid of the addiction. Sure. And that's why eating food in moderation doesn't work. You, know, you either abstain or you don't bother. And the reality is it's much easier to abstain from processed foods and sugar and get a good result. So that's how I eat now. I would eat a big breakfast of eggs and bacons and salmon and whatever, yogurts and cheese. And that will sustain me through till 5 o'clock at night quite easily. And in fact, I don't do that every day. Some days I just have cheese and uh, a banting bread and some butter. And mm. that'll sustain me for 12 hours. Wow. And that, But because... But when I when I see it, when I go out to dinner, then I'll eat a big meal, and mm. and if I had breakfast the next day, I'll eat a big meal. But then I won't eat for twenty four hours. Yeah, and that's that's the way we're designed to be. Wow. So that actually, you know, so they also that comes back to the the point of how expensive it is. If mm. if you know if you're eating six times a day, you probably you know even mm. though the the ingredients sometimes can be more expensive yeah, for banting, yeah. you're not actually eating them as yeah. often as you would yeah. other ones. So you, you know, I must have cut my calorie consumption at least thirty five percent. You see, and so that mm. those calories I don't have to pay for anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, the, you, people forget. You see, the chips and the chocolates and the cokes that you mm. buy are expensive. They're not yeah. cheap. Yeah, and, and the biscuits, they, they're all expensive. Well, I don't eat those anymore. So that, and people don't count that as food. You see, oh, yeah. no, that's a snack or that, didn't, that is food. And it should come into the total budget that you have. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. 
tell me, is there anything that, you know, because obviously it feels relatively new, this whole yeah, revolution, yeah. Uh, especially in this country. Um, and, and, and one of the things that personally I, I think actually lends credibility to your argument is the fact that you were so staunch in one mm-hmm. thing and you actually had the, like, the guts to come out and be like, listen, I was wrong. Here is what I believe now. And I, I think that a lot of people who criticize you for that, I think, probably don't understand that that's actually mm. a bigger thing to do. <laughs> is there something now, like, is there something that you said a year ago that you now have changed your thinking on, or is it still kind of roughly the same? Yeah, I think it's still roughly the same. Um, the the only thing that, well, what I've learned in the last year is that insulin resistance gets worse because you eat carbohydrates, and I now understand the mechanism that the insulin, mm. if, if you over-secrete insulin, you will get progressively more insulin resistant. The I don't think there's too much that I've changed. I'm very happy that there's now so much evidence that, that fat is fine for you. Mm. And that saturated, there's still an argument about saturated fat that maybe you should eat polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats. Mm. I'm not convinced by the data. The problem is that most of the polyunsaturated fats are vegetable oils, which are chemically changed and they're highly toxic. And the evidence is absolutely clear. Mm. And it doesn't matter what the Heart Foundation says. Those, you've got to stay away from vegetable oils. They just are toxic. And the wow. evidence for both cancer and heart disease is absolutely clear in the literature. Wow. But it's being hidden because people are still trying to to say that saturated fat's the problem. I'm really excited by the Credit Suisse came out with a report a few months ago. Now, this is a, a banking organization, yes, yeah. and they brought out this incredible 84-page docu- document where they interviewed 400 scientists, and they said doctors and nutritionists really don't understand. They're still way behind. Wow. But the world has moved beyond that, and that... The future is in increased fat consumption. Interesting. Yeah, yeah and, and they put, put all the evidence together, and it's, it's compelling. I think so that, yeah, that lends so much credence to it. Is that yeah. the, you know, the more data that comes out, the more people actually ha- can't say, oh, it's just one man's opinion. Yeah, exactly, and the, the dietary guidelines are going to come out, and they still, they still haven't gone far enough. But I've seen a video clip of the leader drawing it up, and she says, well, we've moved beyond low fat. We know low fat makes you sick. Wow. Oh, gosh, well, please tell us. That's that. huge, eh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, so, in fact, and in fact, even Harvard said the low-fat diet don't work. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So a fun question for you. Do you ever, when you're shopping now, do you ever judge people, their baskets that they're oh, carrying absolutely. at Woolies? You go, oh, yeah, okay. how can you still yeah. be buying that? No, but you, you, <laughs> yeah. the, the problem is, you know, you just look at people and I know what they're eating. So yeah. that, that's the problem. And then I do go, and then I see people buying low-fat milk and low-fat yogurt and all these processed foods, and I think just, please, you know, when will you learn? And, and this, is, this is shopping in Constantia Village mm. where, where people have access to all that knowledge, and yeah. they probably think they're pretty clever, but one thing they haven't got right is their nutrition. So what are your recommendations? This is a, a question from mm. someone at the office. What are your recommendations for someone who is a vegetarian who wants to give yeah. the banting lifestyle a go? Because I know you said a lot of it is like pilchards and, you know, yeah, that's right. that kind of thing. Firstly, I, I fully understand why vegetarians take that position. And, mm. uh, and I'm fully supportive of it. We don't treat animals properly. Mm. And we need to do that properly. And, and for that point, I really support them. However, my opinion is that they're damaging their own health at, the, the, at that cost. Mm. You see, there's never been a single clinical trial of vegetarianism or veganism. None. Really? None. Never. Wow. And, the, you know, it's really interesting. The dietitian will, will say that, oh, you can't follow Dr. Noakes' diet because you can't remove a full an entire food group. But I don't know what, what we remove in banting. I don't know what food group we're supposed to have mo- mm. removed. A lot of the criticism from banting, it's just people just parrot the same stuff. And it's not really, when you analyze it, there's no basis to it. But no one ever sells, hold it, vegetarians have removed entire food source mm. from their diets. And they're never criticized for that, which yeah. is really interesting. And yeah. I wonder why the vegetarians, why the dietitians don't actually make that point. So, and, and because I think a lot of dietitians are vegetarian themselves, and that's why they're attracted to it, because mm. they want to convert the world from meat. Mm. And so that's part of the problem that we, we have. Because ultimately what you eat is so determined, sorry, what you believe about nutrition is so determined by, by all these other ideas and your, your belief systems. And, and it's meat versus grains. That, that kind of, it always comes down to that. Yeah. 
So if you're a vegetarian and you've decided not to eat meat, the, the key is please try to have dairy and fish. If you have dairy and fish and eggs, amazing, then you can have a fantastic diet mm. and you'll be very, very healthy on that diet. Fortunately, most vegetarians do cheat yeah. so that they do eat those foods and they're fine. But if you are purely vegan, there's no question that that is a very damaging diet wow. for you. And, and don't raise children on veganism. That is de- you'll destroy their health. Wow. So you, and certainly for the first two years of life, you need lots of fat and lots of protein. And, and we don't give our children enough fat in the first two years. Sure. And we can see that, you know, brain sizes are getting smaller. Heads are getting smaller because we're not feeding kids enough fat during the first two years of their lives. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, what, what would you say, uh, you know, is, the, is sort of the repercussions to cheating on the banting lifestyle? Okay, if you let's say you do six days a week and you do one day of cheating, I mean, that's fine. You know, you're going to benefit so much by having mm. changed six days a week. The danger is that it becomes two days, three days, four days, and that's the mm. problem. As soon as you reintroduce addictive foods, you'll go back to where you were, and that, that's a real problem. So, but, I mean, the degree of, of addiction that people have varies. If we take these people 160 kilograms, no question they've got a sugar addiction, and they've got a serious food addiction. Mm. And the only way they will ever get back to 80 kilograms, which they can easily do, is they've got to control the addiction. Yeah. And that means no sugar, no sweet taste, and no processed foods, and lots of fat. And we can get them down to 80 kilograms, and they will stick at 80 kilograms for as long as they like. But if they start cheating one meal, they're in trouble yeah. because the addiction is so strong. It's the analogous would be an alcoholic. Sure. An alcoholic, one one glass of wine, and they're back on them. Mm. On the my um, my GP was saying to me when I first started this lifestyle, I said if you cheat, it almost it spikes your insulin almost for three days. Yeah. So if you're going, oh, I'm only cheating once every three yeah. days. Actually, yeah. your insulin's yeah. never coming down because yeah. it's no, just he, staying up. He's absolutely right, and congratulations to your doctor. I'm just I just love doctors <laughs> who are open enough to say things like that because we need all those doctors. Yes. And let me let I'll make your point another point later. But my point now is. We will never reverse the obesity diabetes epidemic unless every doctor, mm. every doctor and every nutritionist, every dietitian says, like Dr. Noakes, I was wrong. Mm. We've got to change. We've got to change the diet. And so every doctor that changes is amazing because they're going to convert 10, mm. 15, 20,000 people. Yeah. And that's amazing. Yeah. Sure. Um, so to get yes, back yes. to your point, one of, the, one of the doctors who's been practicing this way for Pretoria for, for many years, Dr. Lawrence Retief, he came up to me and he said, you know, 20 years ago, a patient came up to me and said she was following the, band, the, the Atkins diet and she was checking her urine for ketones because he promoted that idea, you see. And she said, you know, I can take one carbohydrate for 100 grams of carbohydrate and I'll go out of ketosis for four days. Wow. Even though I'm eating the diet for the rest, she said, that is nonsense. <laughs> so she said, I will show you. And she showed him and wow. it worked. And then he suddenly realized, my gosh, in some people, carbohydrates make this huge long-term effect mm. and so i think dr west would say if you cheat for a day you probably back go back three days yeah it takes you three days to get better as you've indicated um okay so on to some of the more contentious questions mm. around sure. around bad things what is your response to the medical industry claims that there is an increase in kidney stones and obviously the cholesterol issue well i don't know where the kidney stone story comes from mm. because i don't know that's documented what i can to tell you is gallstones are caused by high carbohydrate diets so Kidney stones, I don't know, and I can't explain. Maybe there are, maybe there's an acidic, acidity to the diet. But you see, that, that's a, it's a, it's a flag. It's, it's, mm. The issue is diabetes. Sure. In this country, 50% of us are going to get diabetes in the course of our lives. And so if some one or two get kidney stones, but we prevent 50 people, 50% from getting diabetes, mm. we've saved those 50%. The cholesterol story is completely made up. And, and the, what we now know is that if you have arterial disease, it's caused by diabetes. The diabetes may not have been diagnosed it's because they didn't, we didn't do the right testing. Sure. And the only way you can test for diabetes is to measure insulin after a glucose tolerance test, and, and we don't do that. So we miss 80% of the people with diabetes. We only pick up diabetics once they're really in the yeah. final stages. Wow. And the, the tragedy is, in, certainly in my case, I know now that at the age of 28, I was hyperinsulinemic. I was insulin resistant. I've got evidence for it on studies we did on by chance. We, yeah. we were doing running studies, and there I've got the data. So I was insulin resistant at 28, even though I was running 140 kilometers a week, and I was lean. 
And yet I had this profound insulin resistance because my father had the disease. I'd inherited it. And so I had this 30-year period before I finally made the diagnosis. But if I'd seen those data at 28, I would have said, oops, you're insulin resistant, no more carbs. Mm. And I would never have got type 2 diabetes. Wow, that is very interesting. Yeah. Um, to touch on the point about the, you were saying the meat, eating meat is important in, yeah. in the lifestyle, but it, would you recommend say, hey, like this meat is better for you, so fish is better yeah. or beef or yeah. pork or whatever like that. And then just following on from that, you can answer it all this together. This recent study from the World, the World Health Organization about the carcinogens bacon, in, in bacon, bacon and all yeah. of that kind of stuff. Okay. So the first story is that, that, that meat, I think humans evolved originally with lots of meat because mm. we were hunters, but then we got fish and fish and produce from the sea it appears to that was critical and our brains really need the nutrients from the sea and it's it's really interesting that many of the essential nutrients for brain function can only be found on the seashores wow and so fish to me is the 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 best food if you if you had to find any evidence i would back fish Mm. that would mean meat maybe is not that important and i don't promote a high meat diet i promote Mm. a high fat diet with some meat Mm. But the meat must be grass-fed. And for me, the safest food in South Africa is lamb. Okay. Lamb because we know it's grass-fed and it's got lots of fat on it. So a lot of fatty lamb chops from the Karoo. Mm. If, that, if you only ate one meat, that's the one I would eat <laughs> okay. because I think you're absolutely safe. Unfortunately, a lot of the meat is grain-fed, as you know, and, and mm. I wouldn't touch that if you couldn't avoid it. Mm. And that, that, that the bulk of the meat that we're eating is grain-fed. So that wouldn't be good. Sure. So my focus is fish and lamb. And pork, if you can find pork that comes from, from also that is grass, not grass-fed, that is where pigs do what they're meant to yeah, do and they eat what they're meant to eat, not, not fed with other things. Yeah. To get to the bacon story, that's an utter disgrace mm. and it's a distortion of science, a complete distortion of science because in science, to prove causation, you have to do what we call a long-term prospective study. So you have to take two populations and you feed the one group differently from the other. Mm. So you would have to take 40,000 people, divide them into two, put them in jail and feed the one group <laughs> bacon and the other no bacon. Yeah. And that's the only difference. Yeah. They're not allowed to do more exercise, less exercise, not allowed to smoke more, etc. And after 40 years, you can say, okay, the group that ate bacon had, had a higher rate of cancer. Now, unfortunately, about 30 years ago, the Americans realized it was impossible to do those studies. So they said, we'll do this the next best. We'll do associational studies, which means that we'll look at a population and follow them for 40 years. Mm. And there are two or three famous population studies that are being done in America, mainly from Harvard University. Now, association studies cannot prove causation. They cannot mm. prove that one thing caused the other because they're not an experiment, sure. they're an observation. Sure. And it's from those observational studies that their relationship and association has been found between increased processed food intake, processed meats, and slightly higher rates of cancer, maybe heart disease. The, that's, so that's point one. Yes, there is an association, but it doesn't prove causation. Sure. The next question is, well, how big is the, the association? Mm. Does it mean 100% of bacon eaters get cancer or not? And the answer is no. The, the lifetime rates for cancer of the colon are 5%. If you don't eat bacon, if you eat bacon processed food, it's 6%. That's a 1% change, which means that if we exclude all bacon from the world or processed foods, one person in 100 won't get cancer of the colon. Mm. So, but the problem is you don't know what happens when you take processed meat out of the diet. Mm. What happens? People get diabetes because they eat more carbohydrates. Well, diabetes is a major predictor for cancer. Sure. So you, you may not get colon cancer, but you might get something else. But anyway, the, the point is that Biology always comes before epidemiology, these associational studies. And biology says cancer is a carbohydrate-driven disease. So therefore, it can't be the bacon alone. It must be a high-carbohydrate diet plus something in the bacon that's causing the problem. Remove the high-carbohydrate diet and you'll do a lot better. You'll maybe reduce your risk of diabetes. Maybe you'll reduce your risk of cancer. So so that's where the problem is. Wow. This is scaremongering research. It and the did, World, yeah. World Health Organization is a disgrace to have done it. But I know where it comes from. See, the problem is saturated fat was demonized. Now they've got to say, well, actually, it wasn't saturated fat. Oh, but it was something else yes. in the same foods. And then all of a sudden, sugar is being demonized. And I can tell you the sugar industry not liking that. And they're going to 
somehow are going to make sure that meat and other dairy gets attacked. Wow. So that <laughs> feels like a yeah. feels like um, uh, John, our producer, was saying earlier. It feels almost like a, like a drug cartel. These the sugar industry. Oh, oh, it is. Well, the World Health Organization two years ago was rescued by the sugar sugar organizations, and the the World Health Organization was going to cut the total sugar allowed you were allowed every day from twenty percent to ten percent, and the U.S. government said you will not touch those guidelines, wow. and if you do, we'll stop funding the World Health Organization. Wow. So it's all politics, really. Yeah. yeah, it is. And it goes back to the 1940s. That's when the Sugar Association formed its first organization. And they bought out Harvard, Harvard Nutrition School. Sure. And that's why Harvard has got... And now Harvard's the main driver of epidemiological studies with this long-term bias towards sugar. Wow. Okay. So, obviously, uh, it's been in the news quite a lot now. Um, we were speaking before the recording about um, this controversy around the banting for children and, and yeah. kids. Can you... You know, if it's largely ad- advocated for weight loss, what is the benefit of getting kids to eat this way? Well, the, we've written a book now called Raising Superheroes, and we don't actually promote a complete banting diet. In other words, we do allow some carbohydrates, mm. but, but no sugar. So there's no sugar, but you can have some carbohydrates. You can have lots of vegetables because that's always been our proposal, mm. but you can have some fruit. But again, we stay away from processed foods, that mm. uh, processed cereals. The key is that if you raise your child on processed cereals, and that's the main source of calories for most people, that doesn't help because that just promotes insulin resistance. And why would you want to do that? So let's let's take a speculation. Say you're born with a bias towards insulin resistance, and you can only secrete so much insulin, and therefore you can only eat two tons of carbohydrate in your life before you develop diabetes. Well, don't eat those two tons of carbohydrates in the first two, 10 years of your life. Rather spread it out over <laughs> 70 years. And that's yeah. kind of the analogy. Yeah. Do you know that the youngest diabetic, type 2 diabetic, is now a three-year-old? Wow. Now, I can tell you how that child got to be a diabetic, a three-year-old. His or her mother would have been diabetic during the pregnancy. And we know a mother who's diabetic eats a high-carbohydrate diet, exposes the fetus to a very high glucose concentration. Mm. Now, what does the fetus do? It has to produce insulin. So it starts to produce its own insulin. What does that do? It makes the tissues insulin resistant. So that child is born insulin resistant. I think all child children are insulin resistant, but then they lose it. But this child now is gets cereals and grains and sugar, mm. and it starts. then it will develop its insulin resistance and diabetes by the age of three or five. You know, when I was in medical school, firstly, we saw very little diabetes at Grudenskir Hospital. Now... It's the main disease that you will see there. Hmm. So we saw very little of it. And we saw diabetes when it occurred, occurred in 50-year-olds. Now it occurs in 10-year-olds. Sure. I was in Australia at a conference where one guy had done a study with 100 kids in his city of diabetic kids at the age of 10, and he put them on a training program. 10, and you've got 100 children. Yeah. It's utterly astonishing. Yeah, and that's, that's crazy. That's how the cha- now, now, what what frustrates me about my profession is that well, what could have caused that? You know, it's, oh, we're doing less exercise, please. It's, it's nutritional. And the other one is patients come to see me and say, oh, I went and spoke to my cardiologist. He said, you mustn't go on the banting diet. I've had a heart attack. So I said, so tell me, did he ask you what you were eating before you had the heart attack? You were eating this diet that he told you is so healthy for yeah. you, lots of cereals and grains and lots of carbohydrates <laughs> and no fat. Doesn't that tell you something? Yeah. And the same with cancer. You know, the, the oncologist now, one, there's one oncologist, Afrikaans oncologist, who's, who's writing bad things about me in the, in the Afrikaans press. And I just said, you know, how many patients has he ever treated for cancer who've been on the Banting diet? Hmm. Doesn't he see it that they all eat this diet? Yeah. Doesn't that suggest that maybe we should think differently? Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, for someone like you, you've put your hand up and yeah. said, hey, look, this is what I believe. Um, and it's controversial, and people have a myriad of different opinions about it. Obviously, that puts a lot of pressure on you mm. to, like, really, you've got to, you've got to do nail this thing, mm. or else people <laughs> are looking for a reason yeah, to jump on your yeah, back. Sure. Have you ever, have you ever been caught out? Say you've had, uh, in the, maybe in the early days, or whatever, or recently, yeah. have you ever been caught out? Oh man, I just, I just want to have like a milkshake or like a, yeah. you know, a little dessert at dinner, and someone's spotted you and gone yeah. busted. Yeah, well, fortunately not, because I don't, actually. You, you can come, I mean, you can put a 
spy camera on me, you will see that I never <laughs> eat that stuff. And I haven't for five years. Yeah. The funniest thing was once it was reported and they, someone brought it to our table, a pasta dish. Oh, yeah. and, it, and it was put in my place. I said, no, it's not for me. <laughs> and someone had already noticed that because I'd ordered the fish or something. Yes, yeah. And someone had the pasta. So they tried to do that. Oh, no, but, I, but, you know, it's really, I am obviously a disciplined person. Mm. And, but when you, you see, a, a, this will come out in, in the HPCSA trial, that what really motivates me is I watched my father die from type 2 diabetes. And yeah. he went from this incredibly powerful, brilliant man to someone who shrunk to nothing and lost both his legs. Now, mm. And he, he died, he could not speak when he died. So we could never say goodbye to each other. And he could never say thank you or I could never say thank you to him for what, what he had done for me yes. and given me this fabulous lifestyle. And, and I, I realized then that, that I was complicit as well because I didn't understand that he was being killed by the dietary mm. advice that he was getting. Wow. And I'm just not going to let that happen. Yeah. I'm going to make sure that people know. And they may not choose not to listen. But, but if, you've, if you want to prevent type 2 diabetes, I know how we do it. Sure. And uh, we have to do something. So people have to get out there and say what they believe. But I'm, I'm driven by this, and I know that I will succeed. The, the pressure on me has been intense. Mm. And it really got worse when my own faculty at the University of Cape Town dissociated themselves from me. Mm. And then that, was, that was destructive because for 40 years I'd, I'd worked so hard for this university and then mm. they came out and said that. So that was tough, but, but I've got over it now and uh, I've prepared for this trial and, and we'll see what happens in the trial. I'm, I'm in a very good space at the moment. You know, the, the evidence is, is so abundantly clear Mm. And and, um, and people are realizing, like yesterday I was asked to write an article for The Guardian in London about why South Africans are obese. And to me it's simple. And, yeah. and, and we can't just keep fudging it and saying we don't know. And it's, it's, multifactor- it's not multifactorial. It's people who are insulin resistant eating too much carbohydrate. That's it. Yeah. Reverse that and you'll reverse the diabetes. And, and, and don't tell me it's complex. So, so I gave a talk recently in front of a couple of my colleagues and afterwards, they, they got up to the audience and said, oh, well, Dr. Noakes simplifies it. And Einstein said, don't simplify it too much or something. Yeah. But that's not the truth. The truth is things are usually simple. The explanations are usually simple. And the, the, the one for diabetes, it is simple. We're insulin resistant and we're eating carbohydrates. Yeah. And that's it. And get it into your heads and do something about it. All right. We're going to finish up with two more questions. Um, so, one, one a bit more serious and one a bit of a fun one. So... If you, if you, you know, were saying to people now who haven't, who haven't known about the Banting yeah. diet or, or, you know, kind of looking into it, what are the obvious culprits that they can start to, to take out of the diet that reduce the amount of sugar intake yeah. and, their, and their carbs? What are the obvious ones that people maybe don't think, oh, well, yeah. that contributes? Maybe like yeah. fruit juice or something like that, you know? That's a good point. With me, the first thing I cut was bread, rice, potatoes, and pasta and pizza. Those are the ones, those mm. that you must go for. For bread must go immediately because yeah. I think it's highly addictive as well. And it's a, a large source of carbohydrate, but potatoes as well. And then you've got to go to the, what you drink because they're loaded, as you've indicated. Mm. So sugary drinks, sugary beverages, they have to go. Unfortunately, it comes down to tea, coffee, and water with no sugar. That's what you can drink. Mm. And I think we've, we've indicated fruit. The fruit that you want to eat are, are berries, blackberries, blueberries, perhaps strawberries. They're a bit too much sugar, but those are the sorts of things. And then, and then the key is to start breakfast with lots of fat and lots of protein and try, and try to make sure you don't have to eat during the rest of the day. And when you do eat, eat nuts or cheese or built, fatty biltong. Those are the things that mm. you need. You have to replace this desire for sweetness with a desire for fatness. Mm. And once you get that right, you're fine. I mean, I'm so, so clearly driven by fat that if I go out and eat food that has, doesn't have enough fat, I'll come home and I'll immediately eat butter or yogurt or cheese. Mm. And then with, I'll be satiated within, with a few teaspoons worth, I'll be satiated. Wow. But if I don't, I won't be satiated. Do you just eat butter straight with a spoon? Yeah, yeah really? I can do that. Yeah. Wow. But they, and so, and then macadamia nuts are, are fabulous because they're full of full of fat. Okay. And and nuts are also very very healthy. So the key is cut the bread, the potato, the rice, the pasta, 
mm. and then cut how often you eat. Go from eating three meals a day to two meals a day to one and a half meals a day. Mm. And then when you're snacking, only snack on those foods we've discussed. Yeah. And, and it's difficult because when you're away from home, there's all these other snacks. Mm. You know, I get so frustrated. I think you asked this question when I go, I fly on the airplanes and then you go to the, the, the guest rooms where they, where they provide food. And you see all these fat businessmen who really should know better, mm. drinking their orange juice and they're eating the apple and, and the low-fat yogurt and thinking they're healthy. Mm. And they're just making themselves more and more insulin-resistant, more and more sick. Yeah. And they should know better. That, that frustrates me. Okay. And we're going to end strong. We're gonna, I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite meal? If you could, hey, hey, look, I could only eat this one meal for the rest of my life, what would yeah. it be? And... If you could have that meal made for you by a celebrity chef, who would it be? <laughs> okay, well, I think it would definitely be lamb, lamb chops. I think they are my favorite okay. food. And the celebrity chef, I'll have to say John A. Proudfoot because <laughs> he's my man. <laughs> Stay close to home, man. That's yeah, good. that's right. No, that's great. Anyway, listen, uh, Professor Noak, thank you so much for your time with us um, on this podcast. It has really been very, very insightful. It's for me especially, obviously, I'm living this lifestyle, but I think also for people who don't know much about it, it's, it's been a good insight into it. Um, yeah, and I really, really, yeah. you know, good luck for, for future endeavors and, and everything. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Nick. And my final message is, you know, go out and educate yourselves. Everyone must educate themselves. That's the key. That's all I'm doing. All we're doing is providing information. And just take it or leave it. But, but what you mustn't do is get in the state I was in at the age of 61 mm. with type 2 diabetes yeah. because I thought I knew it all, and I didn't. I hadn't seen the other side. Yeah. And, and I really, really believe that 85% of chronic ill health today is driven by bad nutrition wow. and and it's that's a massive mess i'm not talking about infectious diseases i'm talking about the chronic disease the heart disease the diabetes the cancers the dementias and that's what's killing us and the evidence is clear it's what we're eating wow well thank you so much again um for the rest of you guys if you want to catch more of uh, of this podcast feel free to find us on um on soundcloud and on the podcast app on your iphone so stay tuned we'll be back in a week or two's time thanks so much 